Turn in your Bible to the book of Exodus. Got a small little chunk for you tonight that's going to take us into some beautiful salvation pictures. And just a quick summary, I think most of you are up to date on the book of Exodus, but you know that the children of Israel end up in Egypt. They're there for some 400 years, end up in servitude under the Pharaoh, harsh rigor. Uh, The Lord delivers them through Moses, but of course through his mighty hand, 10 plagues. They come out, they end up, this is the very short version, at Mount Sinai. And God gives them 10 commandments or what's called the 10 words. And he thunders from Mount Sinai. And the people are there and they are fearful. The book of Exodus uh, describes it this way, 2018. All the people perceive the thunder and the lightning. This is on the heels of the 10th commandment given. The flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, Exodus 20, verse 20, for God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. Now what we're going to get into in Exodus 21, and that's where we happen to be, and we'll be picking up in verse 12, is law. And we're going to not be looking at necessarily at the 10 words, but at case law. And tonight is actually laws about homicide. There's going to be a a pattern in the teaching, and the teaching all has to do, uh, the majority of it, with someone who takes another person's life. What does God say about that? We know the big commandment is the sixth one, you shall not murder, But in the life of Israel, they were under a theocratic rule, the the direct rule of God. You have to remember that these laws are given to the civic uh, life of Israel at this particular time. So we gotta be careful that we understand context, but you're gonna see that much of the law that we deal with today comes from this law. It has its origins all the way back here. So we'll be getting into those details. But I I wanted you to see uh, what Moses said to the people In 2020, don't be afraid. God has come in order to test you in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. The Bible says in 1 John that sin is basically a breaking of the law. And if you think about what law is intended to do, law is intended to be there so that you don't do something stupid, amen? So, Uh, For example, if a sign is posted with a law of maximum speed or whatever it may be, or there's a law on the books, that law is intended that you wouldn't break the law, that you wouldn't cross the barrier, that you wouldn't transgress the line. Uh, We could take it into, you know, things that we might set up in a business or in a family, and we would say, you know, these are the rules, don't break the rules. And we know that ultimately keeping the rules is a good thing for us, but sometimes things happen. And in fact, this particular chapter, chapter 21, the first 11 verses are the law of the bond slave. And if you're with us, uh, we did this on a Sunday morning, and we we got into the law about the proper treatment of the servants in this uh, time period, which was largely dominated by master-servant relationships. And some of you may remember that if a servant decided that he wanted to go beyond that seven-year contract, 
he said, I love my master, I want to stay. Then he was taken to the, to the Lord and before probably the elders to a, probably a threshold of a door and they took an awl and remember what happened? They pierced his ear and he basically said, I will serve my master forever. My ear will always be open to what he has to say. I will be forever attached to his house. Now that's the first set of what's called the, the conduct law, uh, if you will, or the covenant code for Israel. So what springs forth from the 10 big ones is now these little, uh, they're not lesser per se, but they are more civic laws. And so they come down and they even have to do with an animal who might gore somebody. And if an animal gored somebody, it'd be one thing. But if he was known to, to be that type of an animal, then the owner was responsible. And we're talking about little details like this. I'll tell you a quick story. Years ago, we lived in Anaheim Hills and we had a dog named Casey and she was a, a lab shepherd mix. And we were in this little condo and she, was, she spent a lot of her time in a front patio area that was... Uh, gated off. And this older gentleman was uh, part of our community there, and he had this little wiener dog. And he would walk around with a transistor radio next to his ear, and the little wiener dog was not on a leash. And so when my dog was a little pup, and she had grown to about 50, 60 pounds, uh, this wiener dog kind of went at her, and they had a little bit of a scrap, but it wasn't that big of a deal. But this, this dog was known to be aggressive, you know, kind of a little thing. But <laughs> anyway, had a, had a bit of a complex. We'll just leave it at that. So I remember I had my dog out, had a leash. The old gentleman was in the distance. He must have been a couple hundred yards from me. But I was like, uh-oh. And I noticed he didn't have the dog on a leash. And the dog came running towards us. So I put my dog, my big dog, on my shoulder and began to try to hoof it back to the condo because I knew that this dog was aggressive. Well, this thing, you know, ran up and got to us before I could get home. And uh, the little wiener dog was yipping at my dog's, you know, paws were hanging down uh, probably past my waist. And it was just jumping and yipping. And for a while, my dog just looked down <laughs> passively like, you know, okay, you know, a little annoying dog. But all of a sudden I heard a and before I knew it, fur was flying. I was feeling scratches on my body. And I looked down, and my dog had this little wiener dog in its mouth. And it was whipping it around. And with each revolution, all you could hear was, <laughs> and I thought, oh no, oh no, my dog's killed the little wiener dog. And Finally, I'm pulling clumps of hair out. I'm trying to get the dog, my dog, off of this little wiener dog. And it drops the dog finally. And the little wiener dog is just shaking. And it literally walked away limping. So the old gentleman finally got there. And he, he said, well, she, she should know better. It's her fault. She came running you know, on. And, and basically, it was that dog's fault. Because I had my dog on a leash and... His dog came running up, and here's the good news. My dog, being a lab shepherd, was like a bird dog, and so I thought it had killed this dog, but its mouth did not penetrate the dog. It just kind of taught it a pretty good lesson, <laughs> but this little wiener dog walked away a little worse for wear and uh, hopefully learned a big lesson. Uh, it's things like that that happen in life that you, you go, 
man, well, what are you doing in a situation like this? And that may be a bit of a silly example, but you guys know that there's all kinds of things that happen. There's uh, unintentional things that happen. Like, for example, someone could be driving their car and uh, someone just jets out in the street and you hit that person and let's just say uh, to their demise. Well, who's at fault? And how do you, here's a word that's used in law, adjudicate such cases. Like, you know, think of all the specific things that have to be worked out in a culture with a million or two million people who have just come out of Egypt and now God's saying, okay, you guys need laws. And Moses is gonna try to adjudicate cases with the help of these elders that came alongside him, but it's still a big job to do. And that's why we need law, and that's why we need specifics. I was having a conversation, Mom, if you're watching, hi, Mom. And we were talking about our culture right now, and my mom said some words that I told her I was gonna preach on tonight, and she said, you know, sometimes I just long to see justice. And we were going down a list of things that have happened just in the last couple of years where you're like, you know, it doesn't seem like justice is really being served. It seems like oftentimes the bad guy gets away with stuff and the person that we would argue is in the right is wronged. And somehow it's done under a legal canopy, if you will. So just a few verses for your encouragement before we break into the main text. In Genesis 18, 19, God says of Abraham to the angels, I have chosen him, Abraham, in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Genesis 18, 19. Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 18 says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 18. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Job, reflecting on his former life when he was a great man in the East, said, I put on righteousness, Job 29, 14, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban, Job 29, 14. In Psalm 37, 28, it says, the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. Psalm 89, 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Loving kindness and truth go before him. Isaiah 61.8 says, I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery in the burnt offering. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. In Jeremiah 21.12, it says, O house of David, thus says the Lord, administer justice every morning. And deliver the person who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. That my wrath may, go, may not go forth like fire and burn and none to extinguish it because of their evil deeds. And then Jesus said it this way. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Matthew 23, 23. You hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and coven and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these things you should have done without neglecting the others, Matthew 23, 23. And so you can imagine that in the time of Jesus, he saw a lot of injustice. And the ultimate injustice was Jesus being crucified on the cross. 
So lest we misunderstand, not all things are going to be resolved this side of heaven. Right now we're watching a war in Ukraine and we're like, how could this happen? Why, you know, our civilian area is being bombed? Why did this even start to begin with? And we have all kinds of questions and it's right in front of us. But there's a lot of other situations where we could be questioning the justice of something. And we're like, you know, how does God see this and how will things ultimately work out? Well, the Lord lays out some laws beginning in uh, Exodus 21, 12. And these are homicide laws. The purpose of these laws, if you're taking notes, is they are intended to protect society from murderers. (laughs) That's not that hard to figure out, right? Laws that are on the books are intended to protect people from people who would do harm. So if you're gonna capture the essence and this is a bit of a technical section as we'll move on in it, and I'll, I'll try to explain it as we go. But this first section is not technical at all. It's gonna be self-evident. It's gonna sound very familiar to you because it is really case law that is very much in keeping with the laws that we have today. But just remember that ultimately the Ten Commandments are all about loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself And so the extension or the walking out of the Ten Commandments, scholars have said you have 613 commandments and sub-commandments in the Old Testament. They would be intended to have us honor God and love our neighbor as ourselves. Amen? So you got to remember that. Remember the big picture as we move in. Now here's 21.12 of Exodus. He who strikes a man so that he dies, and let me just say that uh, this, this law is also intended to protect a person who may have killed somebody accidentally. All right, he who strikes a man so that he dies. Is there something funny up on the screen that I'm missing? <laughs> okay, maybe not. Uh, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. And you're gonna see, just notice the repetition so you can see the the sense of, or the uh, repetition of these particular commands. So that he shall surely be put to death is in 12. Uh, Look in verse uh, 15. He shall surely be put to death. 16, shall surely be put to death. 17, shall surely be put to death. So you can see that this is about the death penalty. This is about capital punishment. Now some people say from the get-go, If the Bible says don't kill, commandment number six, then how can it have all these laws about the death penalty? And what are we to think as Christians about the death penalty? Well, here's what we're to to think about it. Number one, I do think that the death penalty is something that you've got to wrestle with, but I would argue that the death penalty, when properly administered, is just. However, it has to be properly administered. So I remember I was having a debate with a, a Christian gentleman and he said he had issues with the death penalty. He took exception to my position, which I would argue I would be in favor of it. And he said, well, what if, what if um, they get something wrong? What if the, a piece of evidence is wrong and they take somebody's life? Well, I would say we have to be extremely careful, but our laws are set up in the United States of America where we are. 
You know that cases drag on for a long time. DNA evidence has made a huge difference in you know, modern case law, you could say. But here's what you don't do in logic. You don't argue from exceptions. You argue from the rule. Everybody with me? So you could say, well, what if this, this, or this happened? But you can do that with everything. You don't argue from exceptions. You argue from the rule. And what, something that you got to do, too, is put yourself in the position of a person who has lost somebody. Because everybody from the stands can make commentary on a case. Now, as Christians, of course, what is our ultimate desire? That people come to know the Lord. And we know there's been some amazing offers of forgiveness in very public cases. In fact, uh, I had mentioned to you guys, I think recently, it's a case that goes back a couple of years where there was an officer who had, I think, the wrong apartment. Was that it, Dave? And uh, I'm trying to recall it. Shot somebody. And it was a mistaken identity case. And the brother of the person that was killed uh, forgave that person who was very grieved over the mistake. Um, and she was a police officer. It's coming back to me now. And do you guys remember the scene? Many of you saw it. He asked if he could hug her in the court. And he publicly forgave her. Uh, and, and, you know, it was clearly evident there that that was a mistake. But still, someone paid the price. We, are, we know that when Jesus was dying on the cross, he said, Father, what? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So I will say to you that every time I would make a comment on something like this, I'm always coming back to what I know about God. And my God has been so gracious to me. I want to tread very carefully when I'm trying to make judgments on things. Amen? But at the same time, God is just. And God's love and justice can coexist. In fact, I would tell you that God's love and justice meet at the cross. God loves you so much, he sent his son to die for you on the cross. But God is so serious about judging sin, he sent his son to die for you on the cross. The cross is where love and justice intersect at the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? So they're not mutually exclusive. And we have to wrestle with these things as Christians. Before the law was ever given, if you're taking notes, Genesis 9, 5 and 6 says these words. And surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it and from every man, from every man's brother. I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, Genesis 9, 6, by man, his blood shall be shed. For here's the reason, for in the image of God, he made man. The reason that the death penalty exists is because man is made in the image of God. And so it doesn't uh, demean human life or the value of human life. Capital punishment actually elevates the importance of human life. Can you see it? The reason is human life is so valuable that if you take a life, then your life should be taken is the, is the essence of it. Now, here's how confused our society is. They will pick it. Let's just say uh, you have a person who's a mass murderer, very clear that they've done all this damage. They will pick it so that that person doesn't get executed, but they will then pick it for abortion rights of women. So the womb should be the most protected place on the planet. Why? Why? Because there's an innocent child in that womb 
that is worthy of protection. The most innocent creature on the planet is in that womb. Amen? And yet, they want that to be taken, that life to be taken, but they'll pick it for a guy who's killed 17 people not to get the death penalty. We are a confused culture. And and sometimes what we need to do is just kind of walk these things out logically to see the issue. The issue is we want to protect life uh, in in a case where someone's clearly guilty and then take life when someone's clearly innocent. It doesn't make sense. So here's where we need, obviously, the clarity of Scripture in the heart of God. And so verse 12 says, He who strikes a man so that he dies, he shall surely be put to death. It's just that simple in, in, the, in the case of this law. If you kill somebody, the law is, then this calls for an unbiased act of public justice. And I will tell you this, that in the ancient world, Although there were elders involved and there were you know, leaders of different cultures and so forth, there was, there was a law in place in the ancient world and it was known as the law of the manslayer. <laughs> and I know this is some heavy stuff tonight, but here we are, right? And here's what it was. If someone killed a member of your family, you would select a member of your family to go and kill them. And from what I've read of the ancient world, there wasn't a whole lot of like due process in terms of figuring out the details of a case. So in other ancient uh, civilizations that existed prior to and around this time, basically this law was known in society. Someone kills a family, family member of yours, you pick somebody and they, you take a family member of theirs, and it is literally eye for eye, life for life, etc. Hence the title tonight. And it's a little further down in our section. But there is a qualification. And here it is, verse 13. But if he did not lie in wait for him, you've all heard that term before, premeditated, right? If he did not lie in wait for him, does not uh, do it intentionally, NIV, but God let the other person fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. So I've just described to you the, uh, the manslayer or the one who would pursue someone who killed a family member. But what if it was an accident? This is one of the parallel texts that's used. Say you're, you're out there with your buddy and you're cutting down a tree and the ax head flies off the handle, hits your buddy and kills him. Well, you had no intent of killing that person. Uh, in the ancient world, it could be, uh, let's say somebody got run over with a wagon. In our day, it could be a car. And there was no intent, no malice, no forethought, no premeditation. Somebody wasn't lying in wait to do someone harm. What happens then? Well, in today's world, there's a whole legal system. Some of you love the court shows. I mean, there's so many shows about these particular things, about crime and court dramas. And so we're very familiar with it. And there's a thing called due process in our country, which we all appreciate. And a jury of our peers is supposed to be assembled and hear the merits of the case. And we have people representing us and arguing the case. And we have case law and judges and all of these things that are in place. But it, let's say that that happened. You're out in the woods and, and accidentally someone hits, you know, experiences their own demise 
all of a sudden, someone now is ticketed to take you out. What do you do now? Well, there, were, there was a place that you could flee. Look at the end of verse 13. And it came to be known, this is the beginnings, uh, the f- early formation of it. It came to be known as a city of refuge. Well, what happened is Israel was given six locations in the nation where someone could flee. Our modern idea of it would be for sanctuary. And so it was accidental, but you knew most likely someone from that family is probably going to come after you. Then you could go, you could run or flee to a city of refuge. And I'm going to show you a section on it. Turn to the book of Numbers. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. So it's a little bit to your right. Go to chapter 35. 35. And let's just pick up what the Bible says about these places. 35.11. It says these words. Let's go back to verse 10. Speak to the sons of Israel, 35.10 of Numbers. Say to them, when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select for yourselves cities to be your cities of refuge. That the manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee there. Numbers 35, 11. I just read here's 35, 12. The cities shall be to you as a refuge from the avenger. That's the person who's going to avenge the blood that was spilled here unintentionally. So that the manslayer will not die. So you killed a person, you flee here. Um, but you did it unintentionally until he stands before the congregation, notice, for trial. So as this law developed, basically due process was in place. And we find out from a parallel scripture that no one could be capitally punished on the testimony of one witness. There had to be at least two. The Bible often says two to three witnesses have to confirm every fact. And so this is what is laid out now. The cities, 13, which you are to give shall uh, be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities across the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan. There are to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the sons of Israel, for the alien, for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person unintentionally may flee there. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer, the murderer shall be, surely be put to death. If he struck him down with a stone in the hand uh, by which he will die, as a result, he died, he is a murderer, the murderer shall surely be put to death. And it goes on and on in terms of detailing different ways that someone would do this. Uh, let's go down to verse 25, 24. The congregation shall judge between the slayer and the blood adventure according to these ordinances. The congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the blood avenger, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with holy oil. So here's, let me just sum it up for you. So let's say that something accidentally happened. The person flees to a city of refuge. The avenger from this family goes, tracks him down. He's a... what do you call those guys, the bounty hunters? <laughs> Who's that guy? Isn't he a cat? No, he's a dog. Uh, anyway, never mind. <laughs> All right, so tracks him down and wants to take him out, but he's, he's in the place of sanctuary. He's in a city of refuge. So what do you do now? 
Well, now there is a uh, adjudication of the facts. And let's just say that as they adjudicate it, the story comes out that it was accidental. The man returns to the city of refuge and he stays there and he's protected from the avenger, which happens to be a modern series as well, but we won't go there right now either. All right, so he, as long as he's in the city of refuge, the avenger cannot touch him. But if he goes a step outside the county lines, he is open game again. So he has to basically stay in this place of refuge. But when the high priest anointed with holy oil dies, then the person who fled to the city of refuge is free to return home. Now the Bible says this, that we, Hebrews 6, 18 and 19, who have fled for refuge to the Lord Jesus Christ, experience a grace of God. I'm uh, summarizing or paraphrasing. But it uses the idea of fleeing for refuge to the promise in Jesus Christ. And here's the deal. We all have sinned against God, amen? All of us have fallen short of the glory of God, and we've broken the law in external and internal ways, and if God were to judge you by your thought life, will you be in trouble? <laughs> and all God's people said, yep. <laughs> but what has happened is though we are guilty, we have fled for refuge to the Lord Jesus Christ, amen? And we are safe in him from the avenger. Now God is holy and we should pay the price for our sin, but our great high priest, anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit, lived the perfect life that we could never live. And when our high priest died, we were set free. All people in cities of refuge who were staying within the lines perhaps separated from their family, once the death of the high priest occurred, it was basically a time of jubilee and everyone in cities of refuge were free to go back home and the Avengers could not touch them. That is the gospel. The death of our high priest, his blood shed for us, makes me now free. If the son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Amen? The book of Exodus is a book of salvation. And some of these salvation pictures are a little bit hidden. You write down Hebrews 6, 18 and 19, where it talks about we have fled to Christ for refuge. A place of refuge is a safe place. It's a place in which we are protected by the power of God. And that's what's happened in the gospel and when you share the gospel with someone, you basically have to tell them, you've sinned against God. God will avenge all sin. God is holy, amen? However, if you flee for refuge into the Lord Jesus Christ, the high priest has died for you, and therefore you can be forgiven, safe, and free in Christ. But anyone who has not had their sin paid for by the blood of Christ... And he died for all sin, but you've got to receive it. Amen? Well, now they're open to, for that sin to be avenged. And God's justice will be exacting and perfect. That's why you and I 
ought to run as quickly as we can to the city of refuge. Amen? And that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that was our little U-turn back to the book of Exodus. So you can see there is intentional and unintentional uh, specifications here in the covenant code, as we've called it. So let's pick it up at verse 14. If, however, a man acts presumptuously toward his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him even from my altar that he may die. Now, here's what someone would do. Let's say that they, they were uh, premeditated, they lied in wait, and they took someone's life. There's a couple accounts in the Bible, in 1 Kings 1 and 2, if you're interested, Adonijah, Adonijah and... Um, um, his name will come to me in a second. I think it's Joab. And in both cases, in order to avoid capital punishment, they ran into the sanctuary of the Lord and grabbed the horns of the altar. And it was as if to say, I'm gonna go to the place where animals are sacrificed for sin. I'm gonna grab these horns that came off the, the place where animals were offered unto God for uh, the forgiveness or covering of sin. And I'm going to grab those and no one would dare take me out. It's kind of like if you watched a movie and someone ran into a church. And the question would be, would, would anybody do anything, you know, sanctuary, sanctuary? Would anybody really come in and, and drag them out of a church or do something dastardly inside a church? We used to think that perhaps not, but anymore, I don't even know. But that's the idea. But if, he, if he's guilty, if he was crafty in what he did, NIV verse 14, if a man schemes and kills another man deliberately, and then he runs and grabs the horns of the altar and says, well, you, you can't do anything to me. God says, uh-uh, <laughs> that ain't gonna work. You basically grab him and you deal with him. And the guy may be thinking, well, if I grab the horns of the altar and God doesn't kill me, well, then maybe that's proof of my innocence. And God says, no. It's still carried out in a, uh, you could say, in a governmental way, and there's no uh, escaping it, even if you grab the horns of the altar. If you're interested in some follow-up on this, 1 Kings 1, 50 and 51, that's Adonijah trying it, and then um, 1 Kings 2, 28 through 31, and that is... Oh, Joab, the case of Joab. Now, would you take your Bible and turn to Psalm 118? Psalm 118. All right, so Psalm 118 is a Hallel psalm, and it's sung during the Feast of Israel, Psalm 118, and it's messianic. This would be something that was saying about the Messiah, and it was sung to Jesus as he triumphantly entered Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, which is coming quickly. Psalm 118 Look at verse 21. Notice what happens. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected, Psalm 118, 22, has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. This is the idea of Hosanna, O Lord, we beseech you, send prosperity. 
Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is all being sung to Jesus as he enters Jerusalem. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to what? To the horns of the altar. You are my God, I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. What they would do at the Passover is they would choose a lamb for the nation of Israel. The lamb would be taken into the inner portion of the temple and they would bind the lamb to the horns of the altar to hold it until what Josephus tells us was twilight, probably three in the afternoon. They would tie the lamb to the altar, anticipating the death of the lamb. And they would bind it and wait, and then at the exact moment, in between the evenings is is how we understand it, probably as the sun's getting ready to go down, or the afternoon uh, time of prayer, they would sacrifice the lamb. When Jesus was being beaten, he was taught, he was bound, and he was beat with that cat of nine tails, that awful whip that would open you up, and you guys know how dastardly that was. And the Lamb of God, when he breathed his last there at Calvary and said, it is finished, the Bible records that that happened at three in the afternoon. They bound the festival sacrifice. In this case, it was our Lord who then was uh, killed or gave his life for the sins of 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says the entire world. And here's the picture that emerges to me, brethren. Not only have I ran to the city of refuge, not only has my high priest died for me and I'm free, but the image of holding on to the horns of the altar is where I should be. And remember when this happened in the couple of instances that we can see people attempted this, the Bible didn't designate it, it didn't work for them. And it wouldn't work for me if God was to play a record of all my sins that I've committed the things that I've failed to do, etc. If I grabbed the horns of the altar and said, no, sanctuary, don't take me out, I'd still be guilty, even if I did something very religious. But someone else was tied to the horns of that altar, namely, the Lamb of God who takes away my sin. Amen? And he is the sacrifice. He is the stone which the builders rejected, and he is the hope for all sinners like me and perhaps you. And so he dies that we may live. And even way back in the book of Exodus, as case law is laid out, we can see the work of the Messiah foreshadowed in our Bibles. Just a couple more verses and we're done. This is going to be heartening for parents, and all kids should at least pay attention. <laughs> he who strikes his father or his mother, 2115 of Exodus, shall surely be put to death. <laughs> there you go. Now you're like, 
say, what? That seems a little bit harsh. What is going on here? Well, one of the commandments is that you're to honor your father and your mother. What does that mean, to honor them? Well, the word honor means you put great weight or value to them. Well, what does this mean? Is this a moment where something got out of hand or whatever? No, the Hebrew word here is a vicious assault or a beatdown as if to leave someone left for dead. So if a, let's just say a grown child were to do this to one's parents, then capital punishment is what occurs. You see how the laws were written to uh, keep you in check, not to get out of the line. And all God's people said, gulp. Anyway, there you go. Verse 16, he who kidnaps a man whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, once again, capital punishment shall surely be put to death. If you have an ESV, whoever steals a man and sells him. This is the specific verse I mentioned to you when we touched on the bond slave of slave trading. The Bible talks about the servant-master relationship, but says if someone were to take an individual, i.e. kidnap them, and then sell them, even if they were the middleman. Here's the implication of the original language. Even if you got caught, let's say that someone went missing, uh, they were found to be with you, and you said, well, I didn't steal them. I'm just the middleman in this exchange. It doesn't matter. In this law, this law basically says, you pay with your life. Thus, the Bible teaches that if one were to take a person in any setting, whether we think back to the slavery issue in our own country, whether we think about modern trafficking issues and so forth, uh, the same thing would apply. And in Babylon, Revelation 18, 14, it says the fruit and the fruit you long for has gone from you and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and men will no longer find them. And it says of this Babylon, and people debate what Babylon actually is, but the chariots and slaves and human lives, it's essentially it says they trafficked, Revelation 18, 13, in human souls. God says, don't do that. Today, you know, uh, if you were here on Sunday when Corey came, he was telling you about what's happening in trafficking in other areas. And it's the darkest of darkest of stuff. And let's just all take a breath and step back for a second. Remember, laws were meant to protect people. And when God set these things in motion, it was to protect the most vulnerable among us. And these things God takes very seriously. And there is going to be a day of judgment. You know, we've heard some stories about people who have manipulated the system and they may be on a list somewhere or they may have taken advantage of individuals, but they haven't, they haven't had their day in court yet. They haven't been caught yet, officially. I'll tell you what, everything that's been done in the dark is gonna come out in the light. That's why you wanna be under the blood of Jesus Christ and repent of your sin and trust in his finished work. And then finally, verse 17 is a tough one, but here it is. He who curses his father or his mother 
shall surely be put to death. The fifth commandment calls for honor of one's parents. To curse them is, is the direct opposite. So this could include uh, anyone serving in the role of a parent. It could be a grandparent, step-parent who stepped in, etc. It could have the idea of abandoning one's uh, parents, kind of leaving them and not doing your duty. So let me just share. I've got just two more scriptures for you. Matthew 15, here's what Jesus said. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, reading from Matthew 15, 3 through 9, honor your father and your mother. Whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what, would have been, uh, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father and mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So here's what they did. They basically said, mom and dad, in your older years, I'd really like to take care of you. But I've dedicated that money that would take care of you to Corbin or to God. It's dedicated to God. So I can't, I can't take care of you in your older years. And Jesus confronts them and says, basically, you hypocritical. <laughs> what are you doing? You twist things with your own tradition and don't honor your father and your mother. He's going right back to these laws. And this reminds me of a final story I've got for you, and it's this, the prodigal son. Prodigal son comes to dad and says, and he's the younger one, I want my inheritance and I want it now. Well, in that culture, the oldest son had, I think, a two-thirds right to the inheritance, but he demands it now. And remember, dad says, okay. This is Luke chapter 15. Go. He gives him the inheritance and the son goes away. And in that culture, if you ask for your inheritance early, you are basically saying to your family, I want what I want now and I'm gonna demand it now and you're as good as dead to me. And so off he goes with a bag of money and he spends it you all know the story on riotous living, right? He lives it up. He's got, he's got the money. He's the new kid in town. Everything's going well. He's buying drinks for everybody. But then one day he reaches into his pockets and he's got nada. He's got nothing. And then he had, there's a famine and he attaches himself to a Gentile landowner and he ends up in the pig's pen, pig pen. And as he rehearses the speech, something that we need to realize is in that culture, what he's done essentially deserves the death penalty. What he's done to dishonor his parents, even though dad said, fine, go, dad had to be devastated in the story. And the law would say, you've dishonored your family. You've cursed your family. The, the older brother might say, don't ever come back here. But he rehearses the speech and basically says, in, in the rehearsal, Dad, if you'll make me like one of your hired servants, I'm good. But you know what Dad does, right? He's been scanning the horizon for his lost son. And when his son 
begins to approach the village, you all know what he does, right? He runs and he takes a robe and the ring and the sandals, kills the fatted calf and declares, this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. And when Jesus told the story of the prodigal son, there's many scholars that say it should be called the story of the loving father. Because the loving father, what he could have done with the law, he actually did with love. And Jesus said, essentially, that's what God the Father is like. Constantly scanning the horizon for lost people. Let's pause for a second. How many people who have grown up in the church, who know the truth because it's written on our conscience, it's written on our heart, our conscience bearing witness, have suppressed it, have essentially cursed God, said, take a hike, and I'm going to go do life my way. And they ended up in the pig pen, because that's where all of us end up when we do it our way. Just to save you some heartache and trouble. But most of us will want to learn the hard way anyway. We'll be the exception to the rule, so (laughs) it is what it is. But anyway, so we've gone out, and what's happened? We know people like this. Perhaps it's you. And we basically said, God, you can take a hike. I don't need you. You've given me breath in my lungs and inheritance, so to speak. I'm going to go off, and I'm going to live the way I want to live until we reach into our pockets and realize we got nothing. Even if you have gold in your pocket, it'll slip through your fingers as fast as you can count. Amen? And we come to a realization and we say something like this. Well, I've broken the law, so if I ever go back home, I'm just gonna get, I'm gonna get the iron fist. And the Lord says, no, that's not how God is. Because Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law, died on our behalf, provides a city of refuge, provides the altar of sacrifice, and provides hope for prodigals. Father, thank you so much for this little section in Exodus. It's it's not the easiest material, but it is a blessing to see the salvation pictures and to realize that all of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of your glory. And if you, Lord, kept a record of my sin, I could never stand. I would be condemned And yet, Jesus Christ, my great high priest, my lamb, my shepherd, the one who provides refuge, came and died for me. This is the gospel, and we're so grateful for it, Lord. And we're so grateful that you fulfilled the law in the person of Christ. And the law has become our tutor to drive us to Jesus because we all know that we've broken your law more times than we can count in word and thought and in deed, things that we failed to do, Father. And yet you scan the horizon for prodigals. And the moment we take a step towards home, you're just waiting to restore us. And this is the story of the gospel, the story of your love. You are holy, yet you are amazingly full of compassion, love, and grace. So with your head and heart bowed, whatever the Lord might be saying to you right now, if you're watching via live stream right now and 
Maybe you're in that kind of situation. Maybe you have felt like, you know, I don't know if I could ever come back home. The truth is that God is waiting for you. And for those of you who know the Lord, this is a time to celebrate his grace and also to extend it to others and to realize how desperately we need Jesus, but how God has supplied everything we need. Thank you, Father. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name.